Welcome back. Good to be speaking to you today. My name is Matt Carvel, one of the uh, church elders here at Emmanuel. Pleasure to be able to uh, bring God's word to you. If you've been with us for a while, you'll know that we're in the midst of a, a series on uh, the gospel according to Matthew. And uh, we've been in, for, in it for quite a, a while now, but hope you're uh, enjoying it. And uh, if you're new with us, we're up to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 9, and we're going to have it read to us right now. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marvelled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Well, if you were with us last week, you would have uh, maybe noticed that we included uh, the same part of the same passage there as it's just been read out. We had the story there of Jesus healing uh, a man who was mute and demon oppressed as well. And uh, Jesus heals him, the, 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 uh, the demon goes, and he is able to speak. And the reason that we've included that again is that it's a point in Matthew's gospel, and really that story. Is, serves as something as a hinge, really, between two parts of uh, Matthew's, Matthew's narrative. Matthew's sort of, it's quite, kind of obvious he's been quite specific in placing it there. Because what we've come from is seeing a number of different encounters that Jesus has with different people. Before that, we had Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And then through chapters 8 and 9, what we've seen is Jesus doing many different miracles, healing people. We've seen him casting out demons and we've seen him even calming the storm and showing his supreme power and authority. And right at the end of that section, we have Jesus doing that. He's healing a man. He's casting out a demon. But very specifically, what the issue with this particular man is that he can't speak. And Jesus restores, gives him back his voice. And at this point, we go on to a different section where we're focused really on Jesus. It says he goes around and proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And so what, we're, what we've got here, the, the point that we're in today, is a point that connects really the miracles of Jesus and the message of Jesus. And what we'll see as we go on uh, next week is Jesus calling his um, disciples and sending them out. And really, the, the next few chapters are just about more focused about Jesus' message and what happens when his message goes out and the challenges and difficulties of, this, of his message. And so we're at a hinge point between the miracles of the kingdom and the message of the kingdom. And it's very uh, apt that this story is about Jesus healing his voice. He gives someone voice back and then he starts talking about the message and what he has come to say to the world as well as what he is doing in the world. And what I want to focus in on 
with that in mind, in this passage is a verse right in the middle of that, that we maybe even just listen to it quickly and it was not something that stood out to us maybe, but I think is the central idea that connects those two things, the miracles and the message. And that is Jesus's compassion. It says that in verse 36 there, Jesus, he saw the crowds and he had had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I really want to make that the focus of what I bring to you today. The compassion of Jesus, the love of God, the kindness of God. And as I was preparing this message in the last couple of weeks, it struck me that actually to speak about the love of God, it can be, I think, a little bit challenging. Because I think the love of God is something that we're so, maybe we're so familiar with, even if we're not Christians, Talk to someone about Jesus and the phrase Jesus loves you is something that people are aware of. Whether they know anything else about Christianity, they know the Christian God, he's a God of love. Yeah, Jesus loves you. It's a cliche. It's just a concept. It's just an idea. It just bounces off people. I think it bounces off people if you say it to people around us here in Brighton. But also, I think for many of us, the fact that God loves us is also can become something that we become over-familiar with or we think we're over-familiar with. It's maybe something that's familiar in our heads, but sometimes we lose the real feeling and emotion and know and depth of knowing that God loves us and God is a God of love. And so I want us to look at this passage carefully and unpack some of these themes about God's love and his compassion for us. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And I was preparing this message this week. I was thinking about that. And I think actually the answer to that is so often for many, many of us, yes, we presume on God's kindness. We are so aware of it. In the sense that we benefit from it all the time. We don't even realise that so much of what we experience in life is a direct result of the fact that God loves the world. And God loves us. Everything that we have in life is because God loves us. Everything that you have enjoyed this week is because God is a God of love. The one way to think about it, perhaps, which maybe brings it sharply into focus, is to think about what life would be like if God did not love the world. I want us to think about this big picture of God loving the whole world, and we'll get into God loving individuals in a moment. But think about that for a moment. What would life be like if God did not love the world? I mean, I don't think we can see from the Bible any obligation God has to love the world something he chooses to do but let's consider for a moment what life would be like if God didn't love the world not sure where any of us would be here maybe God would well have wiped out humanity from the face of the earth brought his judgment against sin and evil many many years ago 
Because God is a God of justice and he punishes the wicked. And his judgment comes against them. But we've already seen in Romans 2 verse 4. No, actually it's his kindness that God in one sense hold back, holds back his, his judgment. We can be, just take it for granted. If we were here, if we were here, but God was not a God of love, we would be living in terrible fear. Consider the wrongness, considering the evil, considering the, the things in our lives that don't match up to God's holiness. None of us would find any reason for comfort at all if God was not a God who looked upon the world with kindness and kindness that would have the goal of leading us to repentance. No, no. God's love is all around us. It allows us to live. That's what Acts chapter 17 says. It's because of God that we have life itself. It's a gift to us. In him we live and move and have our being. You only exist because God, a loving God, chose for you to exist. And you only continue to live because God continues to uphold you. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And we take for granted so often the breath that we breathe. But we only breathe because God chooses to give us breath after breath after breath. Because he loves us and he cares for the world. We've read back in Matthew chapter 5 verse, 40, uh, verse 45 where Jesus says, Your father is in heaven and he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. But we so can... Just presume that the sun will come up. No, no, it's an act of the love of God that the sun rises in the morning. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He gives his goodness to all. He gives life to all. And he doesn't snuff it out. Think of all the good things that you have enjoyed in the last week. You enjoy them because God is a God of love. James 1 verse 17, every good gift is from God. God designed enjoyment. Everything that has brought delight to your heart this week has been tailor-made by a God who used his wisdom to create good things that his creation might enjoy them and experience them because God chose to share his goodness with us. God is a God of love. And as I've already referred to, think about the good things in life, but also think, think about the wrong things in our life. The Bible's clear, Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We deserve death for the wrong things that we've said and done and thought. But God doesn't bring that death upon us immediately because he is kind and he wants us to, to come to him and find forgiveness in him, to find repentance. His kindness is there to lead us back to him, that we might not face the punishment that we deserve. God is good to all. And so often we take his love for granted and we can live in the ignorance of the kindness of God. Now we live under a constant waterfall of God's kindness every day. You might say to me, Matt, well, 
You know, you've talked about the good things in life, but what about the bad things in life? I've talked about every, every breath you have as a gift, but what if your life is one that is full of difficulty and suffering maybe? Or maybe that's not just personally. Maybe you look upon the world around us and see the wickedness and see the evil and see the, the struggle and the suffering that happens. And some people find it very difficult to reconcile that with a God who is loving. What do we say to that? Well, it's a legitimate question to ask you that what, if God is a God of love and he loves the world, why is there suffering? But also I want to put the question to you as well. Why is there not more suffering than there is? And it's because God is kind and because God does hold back the cause of evil in the world. Anyone who has known anything about a disease knows that there is no holding it back. It is, there's no, uh, it doesn't check itself. It doesn't just spread a little bit and decide, no, I'm just going to stop there. No, a disease will continue on. And the Bible's very clear. The world and everyone in it is infected with the disease of sin and is ravaging communities and it's taking over our lives, but not completely. And we see evidence of it in the world around us. And the Bible's very clear that this is what's happening. But also it doesn't overwhelm. Actually, if it wasn't for the kind love of God, the world would be descending and descending and descending. It would become hell on earth. Because evil would so overtake. No, no, it's God's intervention and goodness in his life that keeps a leash on evil. Because God is kind and he's wanting people to come to him and know him as a God of love. And it's like the, the world is a, you could say that, well, the, it's like the world is a, a ship that's going down. It, it's damaged, it's, it's, it's going underwater. And wouldn't it be better if, you know, just to go down quickly and we'd be put out of this misery. We live with the suffering ongoing and it seems so horrible. But no, because God is, yes, prolonging the world and, and lives with the existence of evil. But it's because he is saving people, because he is rescuing people, because he wants them to look upon the evil in the world and turn from the evil to find a God who is good and is loving. And that's the, the way that the, the Bible reconciles what is wrong with the world, with a God who is loving and who is good. God does restrain evil's influence. And if God was to come and say, well, no, I'm just going to wipe it all out, that, that would not be very good news for us. It wouldn't be very good news for us because we know there's sin and wickedness in our hearts as well. No, no, God is kind to us. He's patient with us. That's what Romans 2 says. He's patient because he is loving and he loves the whole world. But we don't need to just accept that as an idea, that God loves the world. We don't need to just believe the Bible, what the Bible says, God is a God of love, although he is, and that is true. We can see it very clearly. And so I want us to focus in now on God's compassion for, for individuals. And we have many different examples of that, even in this passage in 
Matthew that we've been looking at over these last few weeks. God did not leave his love for the world just to be a sentiment that he proclaimed to the world from a distance. No, God stepped into the world to leave us within no doubt that God is a God of love and that he is compassion towards those he has made. We see that in the life of Jesus. And Matthew is at pains to underline to us again and again by using the word, the word that he's used many times, behold, behold Jesus. Look at him. And Glenn was preaching a few weeks ago and he was reflecting on these passages where Jesus comes to the most vulnerable people and the most broken people and he heals them and he meets them where they're at. And he shows kindness and compassion to them. And Glenn was saying, if God's like him, I'm in. If you're in any doubt whether God loves the world, look at Jesus. Look at the way he interacts with people. And I think this can be of tremendous encouragement to us, whatever circumstance we might be in. And we might find these stories are here for us, not just so that we can imagine and think about God doing this. Jesus stepping into the world many thousands of years ago. And dealing with people then. No, no. They're here for us to see that Jesus has compassion for you. In the circumstance that you are in. Those who suffer chronically. We see Jesus meet the woman with the issue of blood. And he has time for her. And he heals her. Have you suffered a very long time? What's God's emotional response to you? Compassion, kindness. God is kind to those who are sinful and undeserving. We've seen that with the story of Matthew. Preached on it several weeks ago. Matthew, a horrible man, undeserving of love. How does God respond to him? Jesus shows him kindness and compassion. He befriends him. Are you aware of your failure and your weakness and your undeserving of God's love, look to Jesus. He has compassion for you. Jesus is kind to those who are outcasts in society. The demoniacs, we've seen that. Everyone else wanted nothing to do with them. They had to live apart from everyone else. And Jesus got into the boat and crossed over the sea just to get to where they were so he could show kindness and healing towards them as well. Jesus is kind to those who are seemingly beyond help. A paralytic was brought to Jesus. A man comes to Jesus whose daughter is dead. And Jesus responds with kindness. He heals even those who think, I've gone too far. The situation is too bad. How does God respond? He responds with kindness and compassion and healing. In all these passages, I can only see one group of people, one type of situation that you might be in that is not right for you to presume on God's kindness. And it's not because you're too broken. The only people that Jesus is not compassionate towards in terms of his words and his actions, I would suggest, is the proud Pharisees who are boastful who are self-serving. Only that situation is one that you 
should not presume on God's kindness towards you if you're holding God at arm's length. Now Jesus is kind to anyone who comes to him, who humbly asks for his help. Jesus shows kindness. He's kind to the most vulnerable, the blind men, the leper. He's kind to the fearful, the disciples in the boat. They were anxious, they were unsure. And Jesus is kind to them. He, heals, he calms the storm and affirms them and keeps them with him. We need to look at these examples because we need to be reminded of God's compassion. For, yes, for broken people, but for you. The point of Matthew's gospel that we might have assurance of what God is like. Because in the circumstance of life, we can so easily forget it. We're so busy doing the things that we think we need to do. And we lose sight of God's love. We lose sight of God's specific compassion for us as individuals. If this is how Jesus relates to these different people, it's how he would relate and does relate to you if you would only look to him. And I know this because I know it in my life. We can go about everything we have to do and forget that God loves us. Or it's something that we believe in our heads but not in our hearts. And so many times I've sat opposite someone who's, who's, who's come to me and as their pastor I've asked them, how does God feel about you? And there's hesitation. I know what the answer is but I, I'm disconnected from God's love. And I know what that's like myself. But the scripture calls out to us to behold Jesus. To look at him. To see that he is a God of compassion. To see that Jesus has stepped into the world to show the love of God. That he's gone to the cross to die for sinners. That he's risen again to give us new life. To express the love of God. We don't need to... Rely on yesterday's love. There is fresh mercy for you today. He invites us to reflect on his love for us. To read the scriptures. To see Jesus. To behold him. To wait on him. Are we harassed and helpless? There is a God of compassion who cares for you. It's what Psalm 145 verse 5 says. On the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works, I will meditate. I will take time to be loved by God. To call to mind the things that he have, has done that express his love for me. And allow the Holy Spirit to remind my heart and my mind and every aspect of my being that there is a God in heaven who loves me. Brothers and sisters, you need that. Because so often the world teaches us a different gospel. The world tells us a different story. The world gives us every other reason to doubt whether God is there. And presses in on us other things that are important. There is nothing more important than to know the love of God. He is there for us. If we look to him.
He loves us. He is kind towards us. We need the love of God in our lives. Have you allowed yourself to be loved by God today? Have you made it your habit to call to mind the ways that God loves you and what he has said to you and his specific compassion towards you? He invites you to do that. In this last section, we've, well, we've talked about God's love for the world in general. We've talked about God's love for individuals. But actually, what Jesus is, what's described of Jesus here is that Jesus loves the crowds. He looks at the crowds. So I want us to reflect on that for a few minutes before we finish today. This is something I think, again, is difficult for us to grasp because when we see a crowd, it doesn't bring about an emotive response, probably. If we see a big crowd, a sporting occasion or a concert, it's just people that we don't know. We might be slightly in awe of the size of the, the crowd, but we don't know them. They're just lots and lots of people. And we can't know that many People And so it doesn't have an impact on us. Maybe even we see on the news screens, we see a situation, maybe refugees and there's crowds of people. And yes, okay, there, there are some sympathy, but even the, the broadcasters and even the charities know to really get us to connect with people, they would tell an individual story. They say, this is someone, they'd give us their name, they'd tell the story of the individuals because we so much more easily connect with on an individual basis. But that's not what happens with Jesus here. It's saying he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them. We might feel sympathy, but that's, that's not what Jesus is, is feeling for, towards the crowds. And it's not just that he's seeing individuals. We've, we've had the encounters with different individuals. And yes, Jesus has compassion for them. I've already said that. But actually it says he's just... Also, he's meeting people just in their everyday. He's meeting people in the synagogues and teaching them. He's going around to the cities and the villages and seeing people going about their everyday life. And yet he has a deep compassion for them doing everyday things. And it's not just he has pity on them. No, it's a depth of feeling. This word compassion the Greek word that I'm not going to try and pronounce, but it, it talks about he's feeling it physically. We talk about the heart as the sort of centre of our lives and the emotional connection, but it talks here about he's feeling it in his guts. When he sees the crowd, he's like a physical reaction, such as his compassion and kindness towards these people who would they seem, many of them all seem to be fine. But Jesus sees them as harassed and helpless like, like sheep without a shepherd. Why is that? Why does these just people going about their daily business bring about such an emotional response in the heart of God? I think there's several reasons. Let me just maybe list a few of them now. Firstly, the crowds are not just random people, they're people that belong to God. They don't belong to themselves. They're created by God. They belong to him. 
And they have, they've fallen short of who they were made to be. They're harassed and helpless. Why is that such a, we see people who are harassed and helpless all the time. But God sees them as people he has made and they weren't made to be harassed and helpless. They weren't made to be lost like sheep without a shepherd. No, no, Jesus is seeing the tragedy of the wasted potential because these are all people made in the image of God. Made by him. People that he knows, people that he loves. And he's made them to flourish. God made people not to scrabble around the earth trying to make ends meet. No, he's made them to flourish. He's made them for fruitfulness. He's made them with dignity in the image of God. And when, because of sin, people have been corrupted, they've become so much less than they were made to be. That is the curse of sin. It's like a a school teacher who has a, a young student who is full of potential and could change the world. They're naturally gifted, it seems, and have an appetite for learning and have all the qualities to make a huge contribution to society. They see the potential and maybe that school teacher meets them several decades later and sees that they have mounted to nothing. Their life has just been wasted away. And there's this tragedy. This person could have been so much what they could have done. I believe that's part of God's reaction to the world. He sees us because he made us to flourish. And the Bible reminds us of that in many places. Our eternal destiny in Christ is to rule and reign over creation. Not just to live and pass the time, to to cause fruitfulness and flourishing wherever we go. That's what God put the man, man and the woman in the garden to do. Bring about fruitfulness, cultivate it. Everywhere you go, you're to bring about fruitfulness. The blessing, you to bring about the pleasure of God, the enjoyment of God. That's what he's made people to have, to have authority, not to suppress everyone else around them or to suppress the natural world, but to cause it to flourish. That's who he's made people to be. And so when he sees people who are harassed and helpless, he sees that's not who they were meant to be. That's not who you are made to be. If you're in the image of God, you have dignity that comes from the eternal God. And he's made you to bring about fruitfulness wherever you go. In your family life, in your workplace, with your friendships. He's made you for that. The idea that the God of the Bible wants to restrict people and suppress them is the exact opposite. It's to know the will of God and to flourish in knowing him and bring flourishing to others as well. People are not made to be harassed and helpless. That is what sin has done. And God sees the tragedy of it. I think secondly, God loves crowds because, well, he sees individuals within it. You know, sometimes we get a wrong idea of God's love. And when we think about love, sometimes we think, well, it can only be really deep and meaningful and and powerful and potent if it's very specific towards one person. And of course, we might be thinking of, uh, you know, a spouse's love 
for the husband or wife. And we think, well, because it's specific, it can be potent and can be deep. And we might think, well, if a, if a, a wife was to love her husband, but also love five other men, we would say, well, she's not really loving any of them at all. They can't have a, a breadth of love. No, no, but there's different kinds of love. And we would not say the same thing of a, a mother who had five children. No, they has a, a breadth of love, but it can also be very, very deep. And when God sees a crowd, his love is in no way diluted. It's just multiplied. He knows in every individual within the crowd. We don't know that when we see a crowd. God knows each individual. He knows their life. He knows their thoughts. He knows their story. He knows the pressures on them. He knows their potential. He knows everything about their physicality. Think about perhaps when you're um, picking someone up from the airport, maybe a, someone that you love, someone that you know, and you stand waiting for them to appear and you're surrounded by crowds of people but you're looking for that one face that you know and when you see them your heart leaps and you embrace and that's the person that you know and that you love it's a face in the crowd but for God he's such a capacity for love that he has that response with every single person in the crowd because he knows them he loves them they're made in his image they're made by him no no he loves individuals in a crowd and thirdly I would say they are lost sheep and he is the good shepherd Jesus is using his words very deliberately here like sheep without a shepherd and that reflects the fact as I've already said they belong to him because elsewhere Jesus says I am the good shepherd and in this Jesus is looking on the crowds and not just seeing his feeling towards them now, but knowing the love with which he has for them is going to lead him to die for them. That they might be gathered to him. John 10 verse 11, it says that Jesus, the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. And here at Emmanuel, we exist to help people find their way back to God. And we do that not because it's just a good thing to do or because God shakes his fist and says, this is what you ought to do. No, actually, people coming back to God expresses the compassion of God. He sees the world as sheep without a shepherd and he longs to gather them to himself, the good shepherd. And he's even gone so far as to lay his life down, Jesus Christ, on that cross, dying for undeserving people, dying for the world, dying for their sin, to express his love because he wants to gather them to himself. So how do we respond to this? Well, I want to encourage us all to respond personally to God's love, whether we've never experienced God's love before or whether we have forgotten God's love, to respond in faith to him. To respond with belief, I trust, I, I receive God's love. I accept it by faith that Jesus has died for me. I invite the Holy Spirit into my life to fill me with the love of God and remind me of his great love. But also, and I've barely touched on it here at all, 
One of the applications, of course, of this passage is to share the love of God, to, to, to be on mission for Jesus. And as we'll go on to see next week, he sends out his disciples to bring this proclamation of the gospel, the good news. Because it's the good news of what Jesus has done. And he sends them out not as people who are pressurised into telling people a certain concept or idea. No, no. He sends his disciples out as those who know him. Who have experienced and witnessed the love of God themselves. The tender compassion of Jesus. And then he sends them out. Share that love with others. And so I've barely talked about the harvest and it being plentiful. But I really believe if we know the love of God and we understand God's love for the world, you don't need to be told to go and do it because your heart overflows to do it. When you receive the love of God, you can speak to people about not just the love of God as an idea, but I know God's love. You need to know God's love. You need to know that God loves you. You, And I believe that's, that's why Jesus actually ends this passage and what he says here, not actually with a call to action, but a call to prayer. Might, might be surprising. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. There's plenty of work to do. There's not many to do it. So you think he's going to say, so get on with it. But he doesn't. He says, therefore, pray. Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And I think that's because of what I've been saying. We need to know the love of God. We need to, prayer is the place where we bring our hearts to the heart of God. The harvest belongs to God. And evangelism should stem from God's heart of compassion for the world. And that's why our primary call is to prayer. Yes, it is. Yes, we are called to share the gospel. Yes, we are shared to tell people about Jesus. But he wants to us, before we get there, to know God's love ourselves. To be filled with the love of God. To fill our minds and our hearts with the fact that God loves us and God loves the world and Jesus has come into the world to show us God's love. So then when we speak of God's love to others, we can speak from deep experience and overwhelming knowledge of God's love. Yes, we are to go into the harvest. Yes, we are his laborers in the harvest. But share the love of God with those you know. So as we conclude this, let's remind ourselves we're all surrounded by people who are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Many people are good at covering that up and look confident and secure. And they look confident and secure to themselves maybe, but Jesus saw them as they really are and their great need for him. But let's not be overwhelmed by that because... We have Jesus, the good shepherd. He's laid his life down for the sheep. If you're any, in any doubt today of Jesus' love for you, look to the cross. Behold Jesus, who has died for you, 
to express God's love to you. And that's why we come to the communion tables every week to remind ourselves that God has died for sin, that we can know forgiveness, and we look forward to enjoying Jesus face to face, enjoying our Saviour, and having this relationship of love brought into fresh reality when we see him and share this meal with him in eternity. So that's what we're going to do now. Why don't we stand together? The band are going to come up. And if you know your trust is in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, then as we're singing this next song, just come to the tables, take the bread and wine, represent the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his body given for us, his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. We do it as a community. And we celebrate this Christ together.